If you're able and willing, why don't you stand for the reading of God's Word. We'll read Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, we'll include last week's text as well as this week's by reading from verses 1 through <clears throat> 13. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. This book is very much about drifting and the dangers of it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how much how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation by drifting away? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It, was, it has been testified somewhere. What is man? He's quoting Psalm 8 now. What is man that you are, you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little, for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At the present... We do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by grace, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing of your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Let's pray. Father, as we attempt now to dig into the meaning of these verses for our lives and for your glory, I pray for the help of myself, the speaker, that I would be faithful to your word and clear and anointed by the Holy Spirit. And I pray for these who are about to listen, that they would have minds to understand and hearts to exult in what you reveal concerning yourself and your ways. Guard us from the evil one who already is is endeavoring to pluck the seed off the path before it's even landed. And grant that we would be all protected by the power of the Holy Spirit and kept by him for truth. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
You may be seated. Let's go ahead and put verses 5 and following in place with the bigger context because that's what we're going to focus on most. And I know Dana worked over verses 1 to 4 last week. Chapter 1 of Hebrews has one main point setting the stage here for the rest of the book. Namely, Jesus is not an angel. Jesus is worshipped by angels. (laughs) So, let it be known to all Jehovah's Witnesses, he's not Michael. And he's not Gabriel. They're on their faces this morning before the very God, Jesus Christ. Still the God-man, and he will always be the God-man. That's amazing. He's not an angel. He is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's what chapter 1 is about. Superior to angels, worshipped by angels, and we're drawn in in verses 6 and 8 of chapter 1. Now worship with the angels this son who was given all those ascriptions in verses 1 through 3, upholding the universe by the word of his power and the heir of all things and the exact representation of the Father and making purification for sins and sitting down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We're left with the sense that we're supposed to be stunned at the Son of God after chapter 1 is over. Which is why here in chapter 2, you get verse 3. Oh, don't neglect such a great salvation. You have a great Savior. I'm about to tell you in 13 chapters what, what the salvation is that he has wrought. Don't neglect. Don't drift. This book is written for churches. I don't know your church very well. But every church has seasons where this is their danger. This this book is written to drifting churches. Churches whose hands are starting to flag, whose knees are going down, who ought to be teachers and now must be taught the basics, who are drifting into... I mean, the way drifting works is things start to become ho-hum at church, devotions, crisis ho-hum. Then you become a drifter, and, and your, your Christian life is not aggressive, it's not vigilant, it's just kind of floating, and when you float, you go downstream, not upstream towards God, and then you become indifferent, and then if God doesn't stop you, you become ice cold, and then hell. This is serious business. Don't Neglect a great salvation. How shall we escape? Verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Neglectors don't escape. They fall under the wrath of God. And therefore, don't play games with your faith. Don't play games at church. Get 
serious about this great salvation. So that's the effect that chapter 1 is supposed to have as he moves now into what the great salvation is. So I'm picking it up now at verse 5 and following, which Dana asked me to focus on. And what he focuses on here is the fact that according to Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic in all the earth is your name. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you proclaim strength. When I consider the heavens, the the stars, the moon, the work of your fingers, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little less than God and have put all things under his feet and has crowned him with glory and honor. So there's the promise. That text is about human beings first. Now, we'll have to ask the question, how does it relate to Jesus? That's what this text is going to do. It's going to put the, it's about you, and it's about Jesus as you. That's what we're going to deal with, but let's just not miss it. Psalm 8 is a promise that all of you who know Christ will one day be crowned with glory and honor, and all the universe will be put under your feet. Now, I know you don't feel that way right now. Neither do I. But that's what it says, which creates a problem. We're dying. Some of you are diseased in this room very seriously. Arthritis. Diseases that will bring you to the grave quicker than you had hoped. That's us. That's everybody kind of ironic, isn't it, that we could put a man on the moon, we can knock out polio, we can chase down for 10 years a comet, (laughs) and then put our little fillet on the comet going 80,000 miles an hour, and we can't solve our problem of death or disease. So what's with Psalm 8? Crowned with glory and honor. Ruling over the world, all you humans. That's why you were made. And here you are being ruled by the world. Yes, you are. The futility of the world is ruling you, bringing you to the grave, and in many other ways. So that's the issue here. So verses 6 through 8, he quotes Psalm 8. Let's read that. It has been testified somewhere... Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At the present time, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Now, this is a, this is a difficult text, and I'm going uh, to propose 
that that hymn right there is not yet Jesus. That's the man. What is man that you are mindful of him? That's you and me in Psalm 8. We don't yet see everything in subjection to man. Man is in subjection to this fallen world. And then he says, verse 9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Now, so get, get the flow here. If I'm right about this, you need to test it. He's just quoted Psalm 8, which is cl- Everybody reads Psalm 8 about human beings. And only secondarily, we have to ask, now, how does it relate to Jesus? But it's about human beings. It's about us. And he's just quoted it. Glory and honor and subjection of creation. And then he says, but we don't see it. We don't see him, this human being, this glorious vice regent, vice president of the universe, joining with God in ruling the world. We don't see it. What do we see? We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of suffering and death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. What we see is not man, but the man. Not every son of Man, but the Son of Man, the representative man, the one who would come and join us under the futility of the world, under suffering, under disease, under persecution, and there live out his life and then move out and lead us to the glory and the honor of Psalm 8. That's what I think he's saying here. We do see him who was made, verse 9, a little, for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering and death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So the great salvation now that's starting to emerge is that The reality of Psalm 8, where human beings would have the destiny of ruling the universe, ruling creation, all things under our feet, crowned with glory and honor, not now a reality, is being made a reality by God's Son becoming one of those man- And through suffering, leading us on to glory. That's the great salvation that's here. So look at at verse 10 to see where I'm getting this leading us to glory idea. For it was fitting, we'll come back to that word in a minute, that he, this is God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory. Mark that phrase. In bringing many sons to glory. What glory? The glory of Psalm 8. Crowned with glory and honor and we're not there yet. 
So it was fitting that God would bring us there, bring his children there, that in doing that, he should make the founder, forerunner, captain, representative, leader, perfect through sufferings. So the reason he came and he suffered was to make sure that Psalm 8 would happen for God's people. He's going to bring many sons to glory. Bringing many sons to glory. That's what's going on here. So don't neglect such a great salvation. It may not feel very great right now. That's one of the mysteries of Christianity. God is the kind of God who moves into the brokenness, into the suffering into the dying of the world, and right there lives lives it out with us. And then he dies and conquers it, and he's crowned crowned them with glory and honor as our forerunner, our founder, our representative, and he brings us then with him through death to glory and honor. And we could wish he'd do it another way. They fully expected him to do it another way when he came the first time. Like, what's with this dying stuff, this getting crucified? This doesn't look like victory. This doesn't look like honor. This doesn't look like glory. What's becoming of all those promises of Psalm 8 and so on? And Jesus said, (coughs) just trust me. This is the way we're going to do it. Now, Is that a good way to do it? Through sufferings of the Son of Man to bring all the sons to glory. Is that a good way to do it? It is. And the reason I say it is, is because of the word fitting. Do you see that? In... Let's read uh, verse 10 again. It was fitting. It was fitting. That's a strange word, I think. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it brought me up straight years ago. Like, God is God. He can do whatever he wants. I mean, why do you even talk about finding God to have done what is fitting? Like, he's God. He does what he wants. He's the definition of fitting. To which I think the writer to the Hebrews would say, yes, he is the definition of fitting. So why wouldn't you want to know how everything fits? I mean, it is remarkable to me that he would say, he's going to say it was fitting for God to do it this way. So he's just described in verse 9 that through, through suffering and death, He's bringing many sons to glory, tasting death for them all. For, verse 10, it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So I had to kind of close my mouth 
instead of saying, well, that's a weird way to talk. It's God. You don't talk about his word that way. Listen. And, and now my approach is this. Every time I see something in the Bible that jars me or looks a little, oh, how does that work? Why does he do it that way? Or I don't get that. My mind is, this is God's word. This is God's way. It's fitting. It's, what is another word for fitting? I mean, how would you, suitable, appropriate, um, beautiful, everything fits, it's right, it's good. That's the way God does things. So I'm just going to assume that now, right? I'm going to go to the Bible. If God says, I'll do it this way, I'll say, that's fitting. That's appropriate. That's right. That's beautiful. Whether I see it or not, it's another question. And then my next lifelong task is see it. See it. I think that's what the Lord wants to happen in this room because the reason you will walk out of here wanting not to neglect your salvation if you've seen something of the beauty of it. If it's still boring when you walk out and say, oh, um, he did it that way, big deal, you won't be vigilant. You will neglect your great salvation. But if you see the fitness, then you won't neglect it. So that's why it's here. That's why it's here. For it was fitting. So the rest of this message is this. Three things I see in the text that make it fitting. So I'm, You just need to know how I'm reading this. I am looking for reasons for why it's fitting. Because he says it's fitting. And I assume he wants to, me to see why it's fitting. Because he said it's fitting. Beautiful. Appropriate. Suitable. Right. Beautiful. God does things well. I just want to see, why would you do it this way? Why do you bring many sons to glory in fulfillment of Psalm 8 by having your eternal son become a human being, live a life of perfection, die, rise, and through that suffering, bring many sons to glory? Why that way? It sounds like a myth. And his answer is, it's fitting to do it that way. And I would say, okay, totally believe you. Would you show me why? Uh, Here's the three things that I see, and I'll bet there are more here than these three. Number one, I think he's saying that it's fitting to do it this way, that these sufferings are fitting because they are a means by which God perfects his son. Let's read verse, uh, is it 11 or 10 again? Yes, it's 10 again. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. That's why it's fitting because, notice verse 10 starts with a four, because... This way of doing it through sufferings makes the founder perfect through sufferings, which is an unbelievably jarring statement. How do you make perfect perfect? Or are you saying the Son of God starts imperfect and 
flawed and sinful, and by suffering, he gets fixed. And now, perfect. Sounds like it. So it sounds like. Now, why do we know that's not what he means? Made perfect, meaning he starts sinful and sinless. Now he can be a savior. End of his life, he can be a savior. Beginning, not not so good. Wrong, and we know it's wrong because of chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Well, we know it's wrong because of numerous texts in this. This book, this book of Hebrews, more than any other letter, check this out, more than any other letter in the New Testament, protests the sinlessness of Jesus. You're familiar with one of them, I'll bet. Let your request, no, that's Philippians, um, come with boldness because we have a high priest who's not unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every point was tempted like we are yet without sin. That's the message of this book. Zero sin in Jesus. Never had a sin, never did a sin, never will have a sin, which fits him to be our founder sharing our sufferings when he doesn't deserve to share our suffering. So we know this writer is not saying he was perfected through sufferings means he starts as a sinner, ends sinless. What does he mean? Now we're at Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9 for the answer. Because the very same sequence of thought is found with one addition that helps us. Although he was a son, Hebrews 5, 8, He learned obedience, learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Now, what this text adds is made perfect parallels learned obedience. He learned obedience through what he suffered and was thus made perfect. Now think about learning obedience. Must you disobey to learn obedience? No. No. So here he comes. He's the eternal son of God, living with the Father forever, eternally begotten, never having a beginning. And by their arrangement and covenant to save mankind, he comes into the world and takes on human flesh. And for the first time in eternity, he suffers. Will he succeed? Will he succeed where we failed? You know what you all do when you suffer? Murmur, murmur, murmur. Complain, complain, complain. That's sin. Do all things without murmuring, the Bible says. We all sin when we suffer. Every one of us. Every day, I dare say. Now, how will he do? He's never suffered before. He's taking on the potential of pain when he takes on a human nature. I'll bet when he came out of that womb, there was things about it that didn't feel so good. And every stage in life, new pain, new new pressures, new rejections, new trials. No doubt he hit his thumb when he was practicing carpentry. 
How did he do? He learned obedience perfectly. Every test, he passed. A plus. So if you have a student, if you're a teacher, then you have a student, must they get some F's before their A's are A's? No. They can make all A's. They really can. If they're good enough. And as they're learning algebra or learning grammar, they're learning it and they're scoring perfect. It's not like they have to have, oh, I learn it and I make a mistake. Learn it, make a mistake. We do because we're all fallen. Jesus, that's what's unique about him. He learned obedience. And in this sense, he was perfected. He moved from untested obedience to tested obedience. He moved from unproven perfection to proven perfection. That's my understanding of this. Now, what it says is, that's why it was fitting that God saved sinners this way. Because had he come, joined us in our suffering, which he did, and failed like we have failed, there would be no salvation. None. So it was fitting in bringing many sons to glory that he do it that way and succeed. That's the point. It was fitting that he be perfected through sharing our nature. Had he failed in sharing our nature and become a sinner like us, there would be no resurrection and there would be no salvation. So it was fitting that God save us sinners by a shared sufferer because this shared sufferer was made perfect through his suffering, unlike us who are made angry and bitter through our suffering. And we need a savior like that. That's the first reason why it's a beautiful salvation. This is glorious to watch how God is doing it. Here's the second one. I think the second reason that uh, it's fitting for Christ to lead many sons to glory through suffering is that one of the great aims of God in this whole drama of son coming into the world, living, dying, rising, bringing up people. One of the purposes of God is to gather a family. I mean, this is breathtaking. We, we, we use phrases, children of God, sons of God, so lightly. Remember what John said in 1 John 3, behold. Why would he even start like that? That's a weird word. That's a religious word. Why would you stick that in a letter? Behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Behold, you've got to use a word like that. (laughs) Wake people up. Behold, what kind of love have we received? You, fallen, sinful, hell-deserving people, aren't just saved. You're not. I think Noel's going to talk about adoption tonight. You are in the family of God. It's just off the charts spectacular. That's purpose. That's the purpose of sending the son. I'm going to have a family. And Jesus is going to be a 
brother. Not just Lord, not just Savior, not just Creator, all true. Brother. What does it say in Romans 8? He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Romans 8, 29. My brother, creator of the universe, my brother, big brother. I love having a big brother. I never had a big brother. Give me a big brother. Nobody messes with me on the playground anymore. If they do, they're going to get it. And they will, believe me. They may kill us. Oh, but our big brother lets nothing slide. Now, that's one of the goals of the incarnation and redemption is to gather a family with a big brother. Now, what would be a fitting way to do that? Fitting. And evidently, in God's infinitely wise mind, he looks at this and he says, you know, all those people I want to adopt and have in my family who deserve hell right now have suffered. They've all suffered. I subjected the the creation to futility. I designed the suffering. If they didn't suffer, none of them would turn to me. They've all suffered. Would it be fitting for the big brother not to have any suffering. And I think his answer was, nope, that wouldn't be fitting. It would be, be okay. I mean, God can do what he wants to do, right? He can just do it his way. But what he thinks is, no, I want the kind of family in which the one who is the God-man and therefore very different also be very like them. And one of the ways that will be most like us is he will suffer like us. Some of you have big sisters, big brothers, or maybe big families. My wife has 10 children in her. She's the oldest of 10. What if every one of the children got some hereditary disease from their parents and one didn't? How would, how, would, how would the empathy go? How would the unity be at the family gatherings? Everybody's, everybody's connecting. Everybody understands. Everybody knows what it feels like, but Joe doesn't because he's just, he got skipped. And God's, whether he thought of that kind of illustration, I have no idea. But he looked at the possibility of a great brotherhood, lots of similarities, but suffering, that's not one of them. And he said, nope. We won't go there. Suffering. That's going to be one of the ways. And I see that in the connection between verses 10 and 11. Look at this. So verse 10 says it's, it's fitting for him to be perfected through sufferings. And then verse 11 begins with four. For both he who sanctifies. Now that is Jesus. And I know that because of chapter 13, verse 12. Jesus suffered outside the gate to sanctify the people. 
So Jesus is the sanctifier. And those who are sanctified are now, there they are. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, that's us, the brothers, are all from one, from the same source. I think have the same father. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will proclaim thy name, your name, to my brothers. So that's given as a reason why it's fitting in verse 10 for God to do it through suffering because the one who sanctifies and the one who is sanctified are one and they share in nature and they share in suffering. That's the second reason I think it's fitting. One more. Number three. God has created the universe, upholds the universe, runs the universe in order to magnify his glory and his self-sufficiency and his infinite worth. Premise number one. Premise number two. Perhaps the best way for a human being to display the worth of God, the beauty of God, the glory of God as the creator, sustainer, upholder of the world is for that person through suffering to obey and be satisfied in God above everything he's losing on this earth. I'm just setting it up before I read the text so you can see how I think the argument's gonna go. God does everything for his glory. One of the ways humans give him glory, I think probably the most awesome way, is that through their suffering, they never turn on him. They love him. They're satisfied in him. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abide it still. I'm going nowhere. You have the words of eternal life. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. I think that moment is the most beautiful moment in the world for a human being. You know, the prosperity gospel doesn't get that. The prosperity gospel preaches that God's glory will shine most brightly when you prosper and drive your big car and stay healthy and your wife never miscarries and you never get cancer and you always have a perfect job. Doesn't God look great? My answer is no, no. Prosperity looks great. Gifts look great, not giver. But you take that same person and he, his wife miscarries four times and his farm goes through a famine and his car is wrecked and no insurance will insure him anymore and he loses his job and you come to talk to that man and he's radiant in his trust in God and his love for God. You say, that's not human. That's, that's off the chart supernatural. That's beautiful. It doesn't make anything supernatural to be happy when you're driving a big car and your wife is perfectly healthy and you have a great job and everything's going well. Zero supernatural is needed for that kind of joy. But you start losing stuff in your life. Your health goes and your job goes and your reputation goes and maybe your children go. 
then what do you value? And if God is it, he's just it, people will say, that's a great God. I've never seen anything quite like that before. Now, is that the argument of this text? You know, they say, okay, sounds nice. Is it in the text? Did God do it this way? Did God bring Jesus into suffering so that Jesus' allegiance to the Father would show the greatness of the Father precisely through his suffering? Is that why he did it that way? So I'll show you where I saw this. I didn't get, I didn't make this up. Verse 10. We're back at verse 10. It was fitting for him, God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist. Now just capture that little phrase, for whom. That's where I got my point. All things exist for God the Father. Everything. Everything. You exist for God. Your job exists for God. Your clothes exist for God. Your house exists for God. Everything in this city exists for God. To show him to be God, worthy, infinite, beautiful, powerful, satisfying, greatest treasure over all. That's what it's for. That's why all things exist, to show the greatness of God. That's what that little phrase means. For whom are all things. For whom are all things. Just underline that. For whom are all things. Now, the sentence goes on. It was fitting for him, precisely him, for whom are all things, in bringing many sons of glory to, perf- to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. So you get the connection? He's the kind of God for whom all things exist, and therefore it's fitting that the one who will bring many sons to glory must suffer. You know, it's like, why? And I just tried to explain why. Namely, when you suffer and still hold on to God, God looks great. Well, you know, there's another verse in this book that tipped me off about how Jesus is doing this. Chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. You've been there. You know this verse. He endured the cross and despised the shame. This is Hebrews 12, 2. Endured the cross, despised the shame for the joy that was set before him. What does that mean? Wow. So here he is identifying with us in our suffering. He must succeed where we failed. How will he succeed? By what emotional means will this human, this God-man, not become bitter, be able to pray from the cross? God, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Be able to take Peter back after right to his face. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. And at the beach says, do you love me, Peter? Yes. Do you love me, Peter? Yes. Do you love me, Peter? Feed my sheep. I love you. How does a God, how does a human being do that? Answer, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. So, as he suffers, what are we supposed to see? We're supposed to see something all satisfying is sustaining Jesus. What's that joy? That joy. He's going to sit down at the right hand of the Father. (laughs) 
He's going to sit down, according to chapter 1, verse 3. He's going to sit down at the right hand of the Father, and he's bringing many sons and daughters to glory. We'll be surrounding him. We'll be saying, you are awesome. And Jesus will receive it. He'll hand it all to the Father, and the Father will be seen as for whom are all things. If Jesus failed, if Jesus had suffered and not been carried by joy, or if he had not suffered, the Father's glory would not shine so brightly. So my argument is that one of the reasons we have lights everywhere at Christmas time, one of the reasons we, we, we want there to be brightness, the brightness of the glory of God shines most brightly because the Son of God became a human being, took on our suffering, and never sinned under the burden of it, but constantly for the joy set before him, kept reminding himself, I'm going to make it. And by the grace of God, I'm going to make it. I'm going to be restored to the Father. And the, the Father's glory will shine the more brightly because it sustained me in my sufferings. And that's what I live for. I come to this hour, John 12, 27. I have come to this hour. Father, glorify yourself. So those are my three reasons for why I think This is a fitting way to save sinners. This is a glorious salvation that is glorious all the more because of threefold fittingness. And I'll bet some of you could take those two verses, 10, 11, 12, 13, and see more than three. There's more there than just three, which means we have a bottomless treasure in the Bible to help us not neglect our great salvation. So I, I pray for you, Faith, that you would not, have been, not be among those churches that begin to drift. I start coasting, oh, hum, go to church, sing a song, hear a sermon, go back, watch a football game, ho oh, hum, everything's the same. Your future will not be bright if that's the way you live. And this book and I, for my few minutes here, have been laboring, and this book and the whole Bible labors to help you not take it for granted. Father, I pray now that as we close and we actually sing about your great work leading many sons to glory, I pray that this great salvation would not be neglected in this church. And I mean would not be considered ho-hum, boring, run-of-the-mill, but rather our greatest treasure. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.